welcome to the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week, my guest is Cassandra Johnson Biko, a woman who wears many hats, among which a writer, producer, script editor, and the current head of script development at Dare Pictures. After working as a bouncer to fund her screenwriting certificate from the Met Film School, Cassandra's way into the industry was through the Mama Youth Project in 2016. Cassandra was previously Senior Development Executive at Daniel Kaluuya's production outfit 59%, overseeing the company's slate and generating new IP across international and regional markets. Prior to this, she worked in scripted development. Her credits include Ted Lasso, Season 2, Riches, Secret Invasion and The Chemistry of Death. Cassandra has also co-founded two collectives. The first, The CoLab, was founded in 2018 as a diverse network for industry professionals. It currently has over 250 members. The second, Black Women in Scripted, was founded in 2020 and currently boasts over 300 members, a mix of established and award-winning writers, producers and execs, as well as new industry talent. We talk about the difference between pride and self-worth, how to set your rates as a freelancer, how to adapt to working at different companies, how securing an agent changed her career, how she treads the line between writer and script editor, how she gives notes, and what it means to be a warm CEO, among many, many other things. It gets technical, it gets candid, it gets lively. So without further ado, this is episode 128 of Best Girl Grip. point of your career and whether you recall a moment or experience or even a person that made you consider a career in film or tv or made that feel like it was a possibility yeah I mean I studied drama in high school it was very intense sort of course we had an American drama teacher who basically sort of prepped us for the industry by you know keeping us you know, after school for such ex- extended periods of time. We, we used to write, like, you know, rehearse on weekends, rehearse well into the evenings. There was even a time when um, we had to write our own monologues for our A-level exams. And I have always been a writer. Before even A-levels, I was writing, you know, really long-winded quote-unquote short stories and trying to get my poems published and such so I sort of merged that writing passion with like my drama levels and then was like writing the little mini plays that we had to perform for the grades and the monologues and then my drama teacher said to me he said that you know you have a knack for this you know and I was like well of course I've always told you that I'm a writer And he was like, no, but as in like, do you know what a screenwriter is? And I was like, no, what's a screenwriter? And he was like, it's someone that would write for screen because, you know, you could potentially pursue doing that. And from then onwards, that's when I started doing like research and figuring it out and trying to get a sense of what I would need to get into the industry with that screenwriting hat on. And that's what led me to apply for going to uni, go to uni at, it was now called, it's now called Lee's Beckett, but at the time it was called Lee's Met. And I applied there to do film and TV studies. But then of course I dropped out. <laughs> Why did you drop out? The course wasn't for you or different reasons? 
I think there were several reasons at the time, but the best way to sum it up is that I think that I just didn't have the maturity to be serious about doing the work and the coursework. And also my lecturer was saying to me that he was like, you're from London. Why would you come to Leeds to study film and TV? You're already from London. Go and study it in London. And um, I sort of realised, oh, yeah, maybe I should go back to London and just try and figure some, like, you know, some things out. But then, of course, situations had gone on. So I ended up becoming a bouncer for five years of my life and then using that sort of time to pay for my screenwriting certificate at Met Film School. I think that's really interesting because I think it's so true of a lot of people that they're just not ready for university or not ready to take that experience for what it is. And I'm wondering when the moment came where you felt able to take it seriously. I think I had done some personal growth within myself and also had done the research because I think a lot of the time people lose the interest because they haven't looked into what exactly they want to do and what that's going to entail and how long it's going to take for you to be you know sort of set up and so I took a lot of time you know figuring it out and you know realizing that maybe I didn't need to go to uni to study film and tv production because the course that I wanted to study on was quite theoretical in its approach, whereas I need a bit more of a hands-on, like, here's, here's a brief, go away and write the script, or here's the brief, go away and develop what the series might look like and come up with a treatment. I think I was better suited more to that approach, which is what I got at Met Film School. So it's just about the, it wasn't that I wasn't interested in learning and honing my craft. I think it was more about the approach um, that is used in order for someone like me to feel like I can connect. And also knowing yourself really well, like you knew yourself well enough to say I needed that hands-on approach as opposed to just like doing whatever course is out there and, and then, you know, blaming yourself for not getting the most out of it. Of course, yeah. I'm, I would say that I'm someone that's very self-aware. So I always look at things that I need to do and I always make sure that I prepped and planned for it. And after having completed the course at the Met, you know, was it an easy transition to getting your first job? How did you go about kind of researching that lay of land and how you could access that? It was still quite difficult after I did uh, Met Film School. I think I had a naive, I was quite naive in that I sort of assumed, oh, I've done this now. It should be straightforward to apply for a job and get a job at the BBC. But I would be applying all the time and I wasn't getting anywhere. And so I started like researching schemes and trying to figure out how other people had done it. And I basically came across a forum in one of those Mandy type websites. And they were basically discussing openly about there was a lot of fraudulent schemes online that ask you to sign up. And then say, oh, you should pay £25 signing fee and then we can get you a job with like anyone in the industry. And there was this forum basically calling people out. And then I remember there was this person that had written, oh, um, the only proven successful way of getting into the industry that has worked for a lot of my friends is the Mama Youth Project. So I was thinking, what is that? Like, what is the Mama Youth Project? And then I went on to their website. And then I realised that, oh, this is actually what I need. And the Mama Youth Project is a fantastic scheme. It works by you apply 
And then you end up getting a lot of hands-on industry training. But also while you're getting trained, you're working on a show that airs on Sky One. At the time when I did it in 2016. So all of this that I've spoken about thus far happened in 2016. That was like season 10 and it's called What's Up TV. I I think it's called Unmuted now on Sky Arts. But each training cohort of Mama Youth acts as a season of the show. So you end up getting your first broadcast credit, but then also you get a letter recommendation and a placement in in the industry that is that sort of aligns with what you want to do. And my placement was BBC Writers Room. So that's how I basically got into that sort of kickstarted my scripted career. And everything from then onwards has just been a whole big life experience and life journey. Yeah, absolutely. What a great first experience to have. Well, was it a great first experience to have, I guess I should ask. <laughs> oh yeah, honestly it was. It, the experience was valuable. I don't think I would have got it anywhere else except maybe if I you know applied to creative access uh because they're the only other ones that I can think of that have that level of hands-on training but yeah it was a great experience and then understanding what would be expected out of me and how to carry myself in the industry was also a valuable uh training experience I got from my youth and it sort of gave me my first I want to say like bones of the industry like knowing that I can't just take things granted and if you're a runner this is how you should carry yourself and this is how to make yourself memorable and this is how to make sure that you build those lasting relationships authentically like I got all of that basically from Mama Youth really. Yeah I'd love to dig into that because obviously in the film industry a lot of people's first jobs are as assistants or office runners or receptionists and you know it's quite I think sometimes you can get trapped in like a stay in your lane mentality with those roles where it's like you're the junior person um, and you kind of obviously want to move on but how do you do that without annoying people so how did you go about making yourself memorable and making your ambitions known but you know without pissing people off basically? I think and this is going to sound weird But I think think that not being afraid to annoy people actually helped me because I know in the beginning of my career, I was definitely an annoying person, but I didn't sort of care. You know, I was was openly aware that I was being annoying, but I also knew, well, if I'm not annoying, I'm not going to get the jobs I want. And the jobs I want is in an elite squad of people in the industry that I can't relax. I have to keep on them because the industry is so busy. Like things happen with at the drop of the hat. So if you don't m- make sure that you're memorable to these people, they move on to the next thing, which is, you know, understandable. Me now having been in this, like I'm in a senior position in the industry now, I completely get it, right? But um, at the time, I was just, I was a person who, and I can, you know, sort of summarize it for you, but I had a rule that I would Google the top production companies in the industry, the like the drama production companies. And then I would go onto the website and look at who the head of development is. And then I would try and guess the head of development's email. And then I would set a sort of, like I had, I, and this is how restrictive I was, but I had to be targeted. I would only allow myself um, half an hour per day to get these emails out. And so between 9.30 a.m. and 10 a.m., I was in strict email mode. 
to these production companies. So, and I used to think about it later on and be like, I hope none of these people are actually friends because they're all getting the same email blast. <laughs> they're all getting the same email blast of me being like, hey, my name is Cassandra Johnson Biko and I have an interest in scripted. And this is, a, and I was saying, well, listen, but I thought this is the only way I'm going to keep like fresh in their minds. And, and when I was a runner in the office, I would make sure to just be like, have my ears open to what, like what's happening around me, just trying to be plugged into all aspects of the business because even by speaking to the head of production even though I'm a development person speaking to the head of production gives me another layer of information that I didn't have yesterday so I would make sure that any person in the company is equally important for me to speak to and I think that's also a, a good thing to bear in mind because I know a lot of people who will go into a company and say I want to be a, a script editor so I'm only going to speak to the development producers on the team because they're the people who can get me jobs but actually if you speak to like the production manager she can talk to you through like different ways of conducting yourself in production and things that come through on scripts that aren't necessarily production friendly like that's another layer of information so I always knew that so I'd make sure that every person knows who I am and exists in my mind and they know I exist. And that's how I basically, you know, built those reputations. But I will say that don't be afraid to be annoying um, because unfortunately annoying people are the ones that everybody remembers because <laughs> they were annoying. Totally. It's very good advice. And I'm wondering, you know, when you were sending out those email blasts at, you know, 9.30am in the morning and saying that you were interested in scripted, were you sending like a portfolio? How were you kind of proving your interest? Or, you know, even later when you were looking at script reading gigs, like what were you sending them to say, like, I can do a script report? I would send a very detailed email that would say I have an interest and experience in this area and then basically try and summarize in one sentence a skill set that I could do that might be appealing to them. So basically always gearing certain things to, towards the company. But I would also have a cover letter that I would further explore, like set shows. So I would talk about a show and be like, you know, this is the kind of show that I would love to be part of developing. Because when you say that, they already know whether or not tonally you're going to match the company. And so sometimes if I was really being cheeky at that time and I knew that it was different companies, then I would take time to amend that part of the cover letter to suit the company that I'm talking to so that they all like they know you know it's always trying to it's like dating basically and I think script reading for a company is like dating too because you're taking on all these submissions they've received or telling them that you can have the bandwidth to uh, do it because I think one thing to mention is when people apply to script reading jobs I think a lot of people have in their mind that max you'll get is one or two scripts but then I've been in positions before where I've done that whole 9.30 a.m. email and like said, oh, yeah, I like this show and this show is great. And then the company's like, cool, and then called my bluff and been like, here's 50 scripts for you to read 
these are scripts that we've received that we haven't had time to read. Um, so you read them, but also bear in mind that we need them in the next month. So that means you know that you've got a month to do 50 script reports. And so it's also about making sure that when you approach these companies, I've learned now to make sure that they are aware of your capacity. Because I think a lot of people just blindly, you know, I understand the hustle. Hustling is all that we all do, basically. But I think that a lot of people will apply for those script reading jobs, but not necessarily prepare themselves capacity-wise for for the off chance that a company will send you like 20 scripts. I think you need to make sure that you have the time and the bandwidth to dive into those scripts and deliver. Yeah, and you just, you don't want to like say no, or I can't take this on right now because you think that they're going to go away and the opportunity is never going to come back. Exactly that. And also, um, it's, 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 I think it's a lot of the, um, it's all about your pride. But I, I think, and this may sound controversial in saying this, but I think that if you want to succeed in scripted, there's like, especially at the beginning, your pride can't really exist your self-worth should exist, but pride is slightly different, I think, because you are going to be asked to do very menial tasks. You are going to have days where you are spending your whole day on IMDb Pro, you know, just looking at talent and immersing yourself in what they've done just to make a list to give to a boss that will then take that list to go to a meeting that you may not be privy to, but that's your work that they still need. And so it's understanding that just because you work in scripted at the beginning and you finally get into the company, it doesn't always mean that you're gonna instantly have a seat at the table. That's why I always say about the script reading and understanding what is script reading. A lot of people don't know what script reading is. What is, you know, researching? People just go to Wikipedia, but it's completely different in the industry. And I think that's what we, you know, one of the things that I really had to understand and do a lot of internal searching and a lot of research and also asking dumb questions. You absolutely have to. And I want to pin those thoughts about what is script reading and what is research, because we will definitely get into that, you know, when we talk more about the job itself. But I wanted to pick up with what you were talking about with um, self-worth, because I think that ties in with particularly when you're freelance, how much you know to charge, how especially especially when you like you don't know how many scripts you're going to get and you might set yourself a rate and then realise, you know, you're getting paid, you know, a pound a script or something ridiculous. How are you setting your rate? What kind of research were you doing to figure that out? If I'm very honest, I was one of those people that was regularly underselling themselves because I was, I always used to find it embarrassing by saying to someone, oh, I want this amount. I just found it cringy, <laughs> you know, at the time. But I was quite fortunate to be in back-to-back productions. Um, so then I would sort of calculate my current salary or what my last salary was. And I would put it to people in production and say, well, roughly this is how much I would be earning a week if I was to split my salary per weekly rate. And then I would present it to the the production that way, basically. So I never went anywhere to see, oh, at this stage I should be paid this amount. Um, I think I just literally went by my salary. I think my very first production role as a script editor was Ted Lasso. Like that was my very first script edit- production script editor role. And um, so and I'll, at that point, I hadn't had many friends who had, you know, gone into production just yet 
is your editors. So I was quite fortunate to let some friends know. And then they would ask their friends who would, you know, were very gracious and gave me time to speak to me and gave me advice as for my first role. And they gave me an inkling of what their rate was as well. Um, and I was like, mm, this is really stupid. But I was like, mm, yeah, but you've done all these things. I haven't done that. So I'm not going to say that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and then and that's what I meant by the underselling. And then it was usually the production manager who would say, oh, that's massively lower than what we were expecting to pay you. And then I would be like, what were you expecting to pay me? And usually it'd be extremely different. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. I was lucky to have that. But you may not always have that in the industry. So I always say to people now to make sure that you research and ask for what you're worth, even if it makes you cringe inside, because it makes you see it makes you look more competent, I feel, and that you understand yourself as a person when you're able to just outright say what you need. I mean, it is such a fine line because you don't you don't wanna look like you're overagging it and Again, you don't want to look like you're underselling yourself, but yeah, it's always better, I think, to ask for more and just be told no. I'm also interested in the fact that obviously you've done a lot of script reading at different offices um, and with different companies. And I'm wondering what the process has been like of getting to know the culture and the ambitions and the projects within each company and, and bringing your whole self to that company versus, say, moulding your approach to their house style. How do you go about sort of navigating all these different ways of working? I'm someone that always asks. I always ask at the start of each role what kind of approach is um, necessary because, I, you know, there have been times when I haven't asked and I've written a report the same way that I'd written it for, let's say, for example, the BBC, and I'd written this, it the same way for Lookout Point. And even though, you know, Lookout Point is affiliated with BBC Studios, they necessarily will not want their, they may not want their scripts or script reports to be written the same way. So I always ask the question at the start of my contract and ask as many, you know, steering questions as possible. I'd ask, how long do you want the report to be? What sort of elements do you want the report to, you know, cover? what like who is and more importantly who is the report going to be read by because that's important too because sometimes it just goes straight to the writer and you don't want to be that person that's written a report that's gone straight to the writer where you're basically telling them that their work is trash you know you've just used a bunch of big words but ultimately you're saying that this script is not good so you have to be able to be aware of what the audience is as well and take it from there Absolutely, yeah, not assuming that there's a one template kind of fits all. Yeah, and then also in terms of thematically, it, it, so you're also guided, and, the, you know, this is my sort of thought process, but I feel that you're also guided by the materials that are submitted because each company sort of has their brand out there. They No company's going to out and out say, we only do this. It's an industry assumption. But based on that industry assumption, a lot of scripts will be geared towards that particular company based on their tone or their previous remit. And so if you're applying to that company to be a script reader, you are aware. So you, you it's like, for example, Merman, you know the chances are that a lot of writers are going to be submitting catastrophe-esque scripts for them <laughs> so then you know you're going to be reading a lot of scripts of that vein and so you need to have that sort of analytical eye having watched catastrophe to be like well they've made this show here's why your shows it may not be as 
popular or or successful I guess yeah absolutely and are you kind of doing anything to get yourself into that headspace like to tune into that analytical frequency is it just about kind of watching similar shows and seeing what they're doing well um not always I think I think it's just about me as a person I think every person has their own approach and um how they are as a reader but I I I'm an analytical person naturally and so everything I approach and anything I sort of do is going to come with that background. Um, and I don't always watch the shows before I read the scripts. I, I sort of, when I'm reading it, I'm sort of, it's, I go through a mental checklist in my mind, you know, because each report is going to be broken down by character, theme, storylines. Some production companies want to talk about viewership. Sometimes in a lot of reports, you have to talk about, oh, I don't think this audience, I don't think a certain audience of 16 to 25 year olds, which this script is aimed for, are going to resonate with this because though the characters seem to be fitting the mould of a series aimed at young adults, thematically, this is now out of sync with what society is discussing. You see, this that sentence I just said to you is basically like, a nonsensical sentence that you would put in a, in a script report. Well, reading that script report, it means everything to that production company. But to outside people, they're going to be like, what? What does that even mean? But that's what, you know, it's, it's using that kind of language more than watching the shows and then writing about it. It's just reading it and being like, this, is, this isn't going to make sense with previous knowledge I know. And also understanding the company what they're going on to do this isn't going to fit in with their slate therefore I'm not going to suggest it to them to consider it basically in 2021 you secured representation with Curtis Brown which is you know a huge coup and very exciting but I'm wondering how it has perhaps changed or even elevated your career you know was that something you were actively seeking because of the support that you could provide or did that come as a bit of a surprise no, it was something that I was actively seeking because I've always been someone who writes alongside my like my main roles in development and what have you. And so I'd reached a point where I wasn't really getting much traction. I think a lot of people in the industry knew that I was a writer, but didn't actually know that it was something I was taking seriously. And so the next step was to seek representation. And I was quite lucky to have friends who, you know, helped me and put forward recommendations, to which Sam and Nisha Curtis Brown were one of the agents that received such recommendation. And I signed with them. But then when I was going to sign with them, I realised that because I'm quite a multifaceted person, it wouldn't really be as effective to just be represented for one element of my career and so when just before I signed I asked them to also represent me for not just my writing but my script editing producing and directing and since that happened the quality of script editing roles I was you know receiving and other like job opportunities it elevated you know massively you know I was getting like in front of um you know, top tier talent and of course you know through my Curtis Brown representation that's actually how I ended up working for Daniel Kaluuya in my previous contract so it all came sort of full circle. 
I guess I'm wondering like what that conversation looks like from their perspective in terms of how do you decide what projects to kind of put yourself forward to for as a writer you know it could be that you're offering yourself as a script editor but that maybe mutates into a co-writing credit you know how do you create those boundaries about what your role is and what specifically you're looking for in those different roles? I think it's always important to just be honest and ask the question at the start of the contract to find out what people are actively looking for. Because, um, you know, someone will approach for script editing, but they'll be very clear that, you know, I know that you write as well, but for this role, we just want you in a script editor capacity and there's basically no scope to do anything else. I'm yet to find a role that actually calls on um, my writing side as well. I haven't found that yet and I think that speaks to like a wider sort of industry thing in terms of like there's it's almost like you have to always be church and state even if you know how to write it's um it's 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 very difficult to put yourself forward for opportunities that might have that sort of co-writer leeway but you're sort of nervous to say that to them because you don't want them to think oh she just applied to be a writer and has no actual interest in script editing But then I'm wondering if on a personal level, one informs the other, do you think your ability to be that editorial and to be that almost cutthroat then helps your own writing or is it the same (laughs) difficult process? It helps my writing, but it also hinders it, if I'm honest, because I end up, I'll be like in writing mode on a script and then I end up editing myself as I'm writing. And so I'll like, write I'll write as much as I can for a period of time because um how I write is like I write in bursts you know schedule permitting and also ideas permitting but then I will leave my script alone but then I'll go back to it and before I start you know writing in the script again I tend to do like a read-through of like you know where did I get up to and that tends to be my downfall and I'm trying not to do that because that's when my script editor hat will sort of wake up and be like, no, this doesn't make sense. And I end up moving things around. And oftentimes I have to be like, no, stop it, stop it. Because I'll end up like, you know, unraveling my writing. And But in terms of editorially, it helps me be a bit more, how do I say, like less fantastical. And what I mean by fantastical in terms of like not writing nonsense that is romantic and is amazing in my head, but on paper and in terms of script format, isn't really helpful further down the line in terms of where I want to take the production. And if I want to, you know, send a script to a production company, I already know having worked in-house that they're not going to be interested in the fluff I've added in. And so that helps me be a bit more concise. I love that image of almost like fractured cells and it's not that one disappears, but it's just that it's dormant. And then as you say, it wakes up when it's required. I think that's, yeah, really on point. Yeah, it's sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde. My Jekyll is um, just being able to be like smiley and be in-house in development roles and schmoozing on a development side. But then the other hand is being a writer and obviously like, you know, we've got the WGA strikes and being support of that. But it's like, it's at loggerheads because obviously the strike is lobbying with people that I'm trying to work closely with, you know? So it's like, you are right in terms of like I always feel like a yin and yang like one part of me is dormant and then it wakes up depending on when I'm called on Mm, yeah totally and actually I I want to spin out on a point that you made there and what it is to sort of give notes how do you approach that process what does note giving look like for you I I tend to try and get to know 
as much as time permits on a production, the writer, and understand what their overall creative vision is for the series and uh, or film and take it from there. And then when I'm reading the scripts, the scripts that come in, I always apply that in my mind and it's always an ongoing conversation. And you, with writing, it's sort of like you're, you deliver your notes as a shit sandwich, right? And so you go in, you go in with all the, oh, I don't think this works and structurally this needs to change. And I think this character needs further development or I think this storyline, something's not quite working. We're bumping against an element. But then in the middle, then you say, but I quite like the way that this element is elevated and all that. But I think in order to bring out this element, I think if we work on the you know first points that I mentioned, and you always want to make sure that you're not critiquing the writer's overall voice and trying to make it just as central to what you're working on as possible and making sure that they understand that you are supporting them by elevating what they have on paper with the notes that you're giving. And also making sure that the notes that you are giving as a script editor works alongside the notes of the studio or the production company because they also have their own set of notes. And so I think a lot of misconception is that the script editor's notes are like like the be all and end all. And they are in terms of like, you are the person on the ground, but you still have to check in with the production company and make sure that, you know, everything aligns so that you're not giving conflicting pieces of information. Yeah, of course. How disorientating would it be if you like get a one pager and there's like different, like there's discord within what you're meant to do. I always think as well, it's so helpful because I've, I've been on the side of it where people take out the encouraging notes. So they say, you know, that's not useful, but I actually think it's so helpful for a writer to know what to write towards and that they know what like you are enjoying. So they can be like, oh, okay, I can see what you liked about that. And now I can put it in the rest of the script. Yeah. And just being like, and always making sure that you're an extra pair of hands in general, because I've worked on productions where the writer is so established and I'm not as established as they are. So they don't necessarily need me to be a script editor in terms of like giving them notes and feedback. But what they do need is someone to keep them sort of in line structurally, because as they're writing, it's very easy to mess about with the structure of the series. And so especially in like a final draft format, because as most people know, final draft is a beast of its own. And if you lock a script and what I mean by lock a script is when you get to production stage, you have like what we call a pre-production draft. And that's like the prep draft that everyone is sort of working towards in terms of setting up the production. And then you have the production draft, at which point the script editor who is working on a final draft would have consulted with the execs or whoever is managing the sort of editorial element of the production. They would then inform the script editor that the script is ready to lock. And that just means it hold, keeps in place all the changes and all the how the script is up until the point where we're going to begin filming. And it stops people moving things out of place. And then once you begin filming, any changes thereafter happens within the lock script. And that's where you get elements such as the A pages. And, you know, sorry to make it so technical, but I think like it's always important to bear in mind that there's that element of script editing and I think for me I didn't know that if I'm very honest it took I 
through all my career, all I was taught is the editorial side of script editing in terms of the notes giving and reading and giving reports and stuff. But I wasn't really trained coming up in terms of the technical side of script editing. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I would definitely advocate more for because it saves you a lot of time in hiring someone that technically is a script editor, but is actually really in a, like, you know, inexperienced in just locking a script. And it sounds like it's some big arduous process, right? Because there's such a buildup towards locking a script in production, but actually just pressing a button and, be, and being the one to make sure that whoever else looks at that final draft doesn't unlock the script just to quickly put in their changes and say, oh, it was always in there beforehand. That happens a lot as well. Okay, yeah, that's really valuable. Thank you for sharing that. I wouldn't have known that. And you're right, you know, you can technically be a script editor, but you cannot be a script editor technically. <laughs> and then obviously, you know, you spoke there about maybe people sort of trying to sneak little notes in or people might just not agree with certain things that you've suggested. How do you navigate the creative disagreements that inevitably arise when you when you are collaborating and when you have lots of different minds and opinions on a project? You know, it doesn't always have to be damaging or hostile so how do you create an atmosphere of kind of positive disagreement well I guess and you know I'm only speaking about my experience I don't know you know I can't speak for anybody else's experience but how I've always viewed as being a script editor is like you're sort of the middle person so your role although you have you do have input in terms of like your feedback to the writer ultimately you're not really a deciding figure in the grand scheme of the production and so it is like the pro the production company or studio will always have their notes and oftentimes if there are early cuts of a show that would go to the channel or streamer and then they would give feedback and be like we don't like what's currently in the edit or we don't like what's currently in the script can that be omitted and all you're doing is basically taking that information that is often given to you and then trying to be as diplomatic as possible to say to the writer on top of the notes I'm giving you the studio has also said that we don't like they don't like this element in the script and making sure that they understand the reasoning behind it there's not always time to you know go deep into it but you have to make the time because what you don't want is a writer feeling not heard or feeling like they've been pushed to the side and everyone's talking about their script but no one's talking to them about the script you know that's that's literally how I sort of approach I make sure that that writer that trust levels there so they know that whatever I'm saying to them is I'm not trying to cause offense I'm just delivering a message we can work through it this is my suggested steps as how to navigate the notes that we've been given to the studio I think this is how we could do it and and still execute what you have already but also listen to it like talking to them like in language like that I think has helped in my previous roles yeah I think and it's it's an important point about being heard as well and I'm interested in the fact that you obviously worked with big studios such as Apple Marvel Warner Brothers and also you know in in the nature of your role done quite like fleeting I guess like work and you know fixed term contracts and I'm wondering in your experience what those studios or production companies do or what you yourself do to empower everyone to feel heard you know whether that's the writer or whether it's script editors whether it's executives you know is there 
a rule or a way that people collaborate, I guess, is the word for it. I don't think it's a one size fits all at all. But I think it's about the overall, I think from the beginning, it's about the chemistry. And, you know, when you join the team, how you all sort of mesh together. I think that's the best way for me to explain how it has worked. You know, on my previous productions, it's like we've all sort of, you know, gotten along. There's even if there is an outside sort of issue, the core team has to get along and you're navigating everything as a team. You're not an island of one. So even if you are the script editor, you're not the only person who is having um, constant communication with the writer. So you can't just be an island of one and just talk to the writer by themselves, but you're not communicating to anybody else. So you're looking at it from each piece, like everybody has to be communicating. I think that's the best way that I've figured out how it works. It's just open lines of communication and being emboldened to like, if you don't understand something, being able to ask. There might not always be time. So you always have to figure out who you're asking questions to, but nine times out of 10, there'll be someone on the team who will be able to assist you and be able to help you figure out what you need. And um, that's the experiences that I've had in all the productions I've worked on. And I think them being like big studios, they've, they've, they're all well-oiled machines. So this is my first production with them, but that's like their 50th production of the last three years. And so it's being able to assess that everything that's been happening up until you joined has been working just fine. And so, and so, yeah, there might be issues, but if you have such a big issue that nine times means, it means that that's not, you guys aren't really gelling. So it's not going to work. Yes. It's almost like taking that in house with yourself. (laughs) It's basically like being able to accept that, like they've already been working like this. So if I don't understand how it works and I can't get along with it, then it means that I'm the one that doesn't fit in, basically. They're not at this stage gonna make big sweeping changes just because you don't understand how something works. It's about being realistic with yourself. And I've done that a few times. I've, I've, I've walked away from productions in the past if I couldn't see a through line as to how this is gonna work for four more months, you know? And just being honest them, being able to let them find someone who can get the job done the way they want and isn't going to rock the boat as much and you take yourself away. Because I'm always about preserving my mental health. So if anything's going to disturb my mental health, then I'm not really here for it, you know? Can you say specifically without, you know, maybe naming names or productions, but what what about it wasn't working? You know, what was the sort of um, disruption that, you know, came to a head for you? I think is a lot of the issues I've had and is managers not knowing how to do their job, especially in the production. Like if you have an exec that doesn't know what they're doing or isn't really interested in listening to their team members or people who are working below them when they flag that there are issues, then the whole sort of production is going to end up poisoned because it sort of starts at the head, doesn't it? So however the head conducts themselves is how everybody else is going to conduct themselves in a production. And I've worked on productions where like the exec has has just been a mind, it's just been ridiculous. (laughs) So I've just had to be to myself, like they're always going to be a ridiculous person. So do I want to continue working for a ridiculous person? Probably not. So I'm just going to leave. 
Yeah, there was that piece that just came out in Vanity Fair about the toxic atmosphere on Lost. Um, and I saw I saw a tweet where I think is now a producer called Manette Louie, who's a really successful indie producer. And I think at the time she was an art department assistant. And I think it was so telling the fact that even she could feel that toxicity, like how how far it had trickled down from the top, that it just pervaded like the entire atmosphere on set. And I think, yeah, you're so right. It just, it comes from the top. I can't say which one, um, but I worked on a production where the exec was such a problem that the production manager and the line producer basically got together and they locked the production office and then sent a memo around to everybody saying that the production office is closed for today. But because I was obviously part of the editorial team, I was able to get a bit more information. And basically they'd locked it because um, the exec was on a rampage and he was currently being investigated. And so they didn't want him to have access to the production office in order to take um, key bits of information and I don't know, shred it or, or or like, you know, cause issues for production because they had identified that he was in just in a vindictive mind space. And so you have things like that that I've absolutely witnessed. Um, and like the interns, imagine being an intern on a production and you're only getting paid a certain amount of days. But you have to deal with the nonsense of like the higher the higher ups who are having to lock a production office to keep someone out. But you're just an intern that really needs this job, you know, and that's how you feel it because no, they're not thinking about the little people. And obviously they can't, They, you know, realistically they can't. But at the same time, it's like, what do you do about these runners and the interns and the production assistants and the makeup intern and all these people that just want to do their job so they can say on their CV that they worked at this production. But they're swept in with all these um, political things that happen. And the way that they're modelling what leadership looks like, you know, it, it takes a lot of strength to break that mould. So if you're like a young person learning that, you might then, you know, take that forward the next time you're in a position of power. And then now you're moving forward in production my thinking that's just the way things are and it's interesting what I've realized as well is that when you work on one sort of toxic production it's almost like the chemistry of what you're used to you sort of attract more and so I've spoken to loads of people in the industry who have had what who have worked on a production maybe as a script assistant or a writer assistant in the room and they've witnessed like arguments happening in the writer's room but they're so used to it being like that that when they go to their next production where, you know, everything's above board and no one's cutting corners and the writer's room is functioning properly, but they end up being the person on the team that's cutting corners. So then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's what you've learned from your previous role. There's been no time in between for you to learn better habits. And so you're taking the bad habits and thinking that's Bible and that's how everything works. And then you're implementing them on a job that is actually better than the one that you had before. What do you do to like decompress from each job or just reflect on, you know, how it went and, you know, whether you did your best in it, you know, is that, do you have like a, an almost like an exit interview with yourself? <laughs> I sort of, I, but I, I also try and have an exit interview with my boss. I know I, I, I'm, I'm someone that, um, I'll be very honest. I'm, and it's weird because I work in this industry, but I'm someone that's still quite uncomfortable with ambiguity. And so if I'm going to decompress from a role, I need to know for myself how my performance went. And you won't always be able to get that consistent feedback during a production. But I try and ask at the end of the role, like, you know, like, how did it go? You know, did, did the script editing work? Did the note, the, the way I 
you know, presented notes. Did it work? Like how, like what, what do you think I could do next for my next show? I'm someone that always asks that, whether it's production or development, just so I know how to do things differently. And then afterwards I take, I try and take longer gaps because at the start of my career, I was so afraid of career gaps because I thought if you take a career gap, no one's going to be interested in you because they're going to be like, well, what are you doing in the month in between? But actually forcing myself to take a break in between roles has helped me not carry emotional baggage or try not to carry emotional baggage into my next role by just having a bit of a woosah moment and reminding myself that just because this person was a prick doesn't mean I should assume that the next person's going to be a prick. So don't treat people like they're going to be a prick from the beginning and give everyone a fair space to just be themselves. And if they end up being a prick, that's just them. It's not relation to a wider industry topic, you know? <laughs> it's just like just being able to be honest and breathe we've hit on this idea of myths that maybe exist in the industry this this um, notion that the script editor role is more technical than perhaps we thought this idea that career gaps um, don't have to be a bad thing is there anything else that you feel like is a myth that existed around your role that you wish that you'd known earlier I think a lot of times when you're trained as a script editor, there's a fear that's put into you from the beginning to not let your creative ideas seep into the notes you give the writer because you don't want to influence their ideas, right? That's not always good advice to give to someone at the start of their script editing career because a lot of the times when you're told that, people don't then stipulate to say, but that doesn't mean for everybody you don't give that advice. You know what I mean? You just basically want to give them, like, try at the beginning to speak to a writer, engage how they like to be worked with, and then mould your script editing technique to them. I definitely think that's something that we really need to tell people at the start of any career they want to do in the industry, is that just because one person says you shouldn't do it this way doesn't mean that that's the way that's how it's going to be all the time if you it's easier said than done because I have been in roles where I haven't felt comfortable enough to ask a question or I have perceived that there's not there's no space for me to be educated but my thing is that you should always find someone to try and ask a question they may not know the answer, but they will know someone who can give you an answer. And I think it's better to ask than to never have asked and just to assume that, you know, oh, no one's going to want to hear my ideas or my voice or anything like that. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm wondering at what point you felt ready to step into a development executive role. You know, you worked um, with Erebus Pictures and 59%. You know, was that an uh, opportunity that you offered that then made you consider it? Or were you looking for those types of roles already? Um, I've always had a passion to be an in-house development role because I'm very much a development person. So when it came to having done all those like productions, I think I was quite near the end toward, I was feeling a lot of burnout anyway. So I sort of made a decision that I'm going to either go in-house as a development editor or development executive because the experience I'd amassed on production aligned with what those roles would require. And so that's how I sort of made that decision. And then also, and it's not an annoying thing, it's a good thing when you're a freelancer, but I found, I found it annoying going in-house is that my freelance rate was drastically way more than what someone 
in-house was earning. And I found it annoying, not because I didn't deserve that, but I found it annoying because a lot of production companies that I was reaching out to at the time were seeing that I was worth X amount. But then on my CV for them, my experience didn't warrant paying me that amount for the roles I was applying for. It was like a mismatch, even though I am ex- like, a, you know, my CV was experienced for them and the, what they wanted, I, you know, getting paid this amount, they didn't, it was, it wasn't enough for them to take a risk to pay me that amount to come indoors and be their exec for, to be their exec for the amount that I was on. They wanted someone who had done like whole seasons of, you know, big shows or had worked in the industry for 15 years. And I think that's, I think that just speaks to the overall disconnect between new generation TV and film industry and old generation TV and film industry. Because um, this is, I'm talking about companies who I would class as the older generation of the industry. They're the ones that were having the problem in terms of, and then I would get a lot of, oh, we think you're great, but just not quite the experience that we're looking for. But then I'm looking at my CV and I'm like, well, hang on a minute. I worked on Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso was, has been nominated for so many Emmys and this is all on my CV. So in my head, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. (laughs) I have these blockbuster Hollywood things on my CV. Like it took me forever to get these roles. And I'm very appreciative of all the, you know, oh, well done. You've done, you know, you've done well with your career and that. But it does have to be mentioned that it wasn't straightforward. (laughs) Like everybody else, I've had months, literally like just last year, there was months where I wasn't getting contracts. I wasn't getting roles, you know? So then I had to be, I was forced to then look at going back into production. And again, every every role I've had, I'm very grateful for. And I would never turn my nose up at because they've all, they've all helped me in my overall journey in the industry. But because I was already feeling burnt out after the last productions I'd gone on, Production was the last thing that I ever wanted to do. Um, and I was really trying actively to avoid it. But I wasn't getting in-house roles. So I was stuck in that middle ground and then still doing productions in burnout mode, which is never a good idea. Working with Erebus was like fantastic because they were so great in allowing me to have that title as a part-time role. But just having that title on my CV made all the difference in the world because I finally had a title that bridged the gap that people were observing from my CV. Yeah, it's almost like a language thing as opposed to, it's not the experience itself, but it's making it legible to other people. And is that how you got then the role with Dare Pictures as head of scripted development? You know, was that something that had kind of been percolating for a while? Talk me through, you know, that journey. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I just want to preface it and say that I've been very fortunate to have some of the best mentors in this industry. You know, my mentor was Miranda Wayland, who was head of diversity for BBC, who taught me so much about how to carry myself in the industry as a senior, as a senior person. And I learned so much from her. She's now at Amazon. And then after Miranda, I then wanted to explore mentorship from a business sense. And so I had come into contact with Darren Lawford, 
through another collective that I co-run and that's called the collab and Darren was part as part of the collab and one of the founders of the collab you know introduced me to Darren and it was great and I basically approached Darren and I said look I was like this random person I was like look I know you've never met me but I want to meet you because I work in scripted and I think there's loads of things that we can speak about. Furthermore, you know, there's another angle that I want to talk to you about. So I met up with Darren, I think it was last year, and he had just started their pictures. And I I basically was, you know, quite keen to find a way to work with him because Darren Lawford is, um, you know, one of the juggernauts in the journalism industry and is also one of the founding fathers of Radio One Extra. Like, it's, it's working with someone who has, especially a black person who has built some of the institutions that people in my generation are still benefiting from and listening and enjoying, you know, that's coming from Darren. And so I thought this is someone that I would love to learn from because he is still working in the industry, you know, after many, many years. And loads of people respect him and he's so, you know, just just a warm individual. I want to be a warm CEO, <laughs> you know? I said so I wanted to be a warm CEO, so I wanted to learn from someone who I feel, you know, is the epitome of that. And that's Darren Norford, you know, and then obviously because of my experience and me speaking to him about scripted and all the things that I'd done and all that, you know, we sort of found an alignment in terms of our tastes and how things would run within there. That was like at some point like last year, but then I'd been offered the contract to work at 59% and which was an invaluable experience working with Daniel and obviously you know Daniel came with his own strain of um, training for me and that you know being the first black British person to win an Oscar you know like that was another way of like I just wanted to elevate my skill set you know have a bit more experience international experience um so yes yeah, so i ended up there was going through a transitional phase so you know we i ended up going to 59 percent worked there for a bit the role was concluding naturally and so and there was at a position where now's the time for the scripted arm to you know really go like be pushed forward and so that's how i you know and then obviously darren was my mentor anyway so we'd been in consistent contact so once that contract had ended you know we spoke um, had a few more chats and then the rest is history and now I'm head of scripted for Dare and honestly working with your mentor is so is such a beautiful experience because you are working with someone that is is already invested in your growth and you already have that level of transparency so you can speak to them about stupid things and I the reason why I say stupid things is because like in the industry people don't suffer fools gladly and so if you're someone like me that has very ditzy moments I'm very intelligent let's just say (laughs) but in terms of like I have moments where I'm like will ask the the obvious questions but just because I need it to be confirmed in my mind and there have been contracts where that hasn't necessarily been the best fit. You're saying so many interesting things that I want to pick up on one of them was you know what it means to be a warm CEO you know what does that look like for you how do you how do you enact that? So I have loads of role models in this industry. One of the role models that came about very early in my career is Deborah Sargent. So I worked at um, Second Star Productions as Deborah's assistant. Second Star Productions um, made Flirty Dancing for Channel 4. 
I then went on to work as a runner at Sister. And that was at the very early stage of Sister when, you know, uh, Chernobyl was still a, a writer's room and The Split had just come in and Giri Hadji was still quite new. And don't forget the driver were new. So I was in the office when all these things were happening, right? So I got my very first brush at being able to work with someone or under someone that I'd already admired before, way before the industry, which was, of course, Jane Featherstone. And so I got my very first experience of a female boss, number one, and someone who is um, respected in the industry. But then also the, my very first bout of working with someone who, though I was the runner, like she knew who I was and always gave me time and was always kind to me, right? So if I'm looking at very first examples, I would look at Jane Featherstone. But in terms of working like really under someone and actually seeing as an assistant level how they build their company and how they interact with their staff and others around them, I would say then it was Deborah Sargent. And so then I realized, oh, you can be nice because I'd worked with Jane who was nice. I'd worked with Deborah who is absolutely lovely and is like a warm ray of sunshine. I'd worked with her, so I thought, how are these two ladies? <laughs> I've worked in industry for years and years and years, but are, like, are nice and give me, are giving me time of day. Oh, so I can do it, right? <laughs> that warm CEO. And I think that it really trickles down into the company because I was devastated when I left Second Star. I was very grateful because I was moving from Second Star to Lookout Point. So I was able, that was when I finally went back into scripted, you know, you know, finally and the rest is history. But I was devastated leaving Second Star because I was like, oh no, like I'm leaving Deborah. Like I don't want her to think that, you know, all the kindness that she's shown me, I'm leaving her anyway. And she was like, no, I'm proud of you because you're leaving to go and do your dream. And at the end of the day, I'm in support of you and your career, right? I'm, I, you're, you were my employee, but I'm invested in you. And I think that's the difference. You're not just invested in the company, you're invested in the people that are working for you. And I think that's why working with Darren now, and again, I just want to make it clear, I'm not discounting any other CEO I've worked for. I've I obviously worked for some of the most amazing people ever. But in terms of like people I can spotlight in terms of where that's, I want to say, like wanting to follow in their footsteps in terms of how they run their companies, I would definitely say it would be Jane Featherstone and Deborah Sargent and also Darren Lawford. I'm also interested in what you said where you were speaking about I'm fully a development person and you said earlier that you were self-aware and I'm wondering you know what you feel your instincts or your skill sets are that make you especially suited to development what does it mean to be a development person? Thank you for saying in your mind because what I don't want to do is say 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 what I think a development person is, and then people are like, "What the hell is she talking about?" Um, so in my mind, as my development head comes from looking at the industry as a whole and then splitting it into years and thinking, "What are the trends going to be for these years?" and sort of gearing my interests in, to align with that. So I'll give you an example. I am a massive nerd. So I love comic books. I read a lot of books. I'm a, I'm a very proud Redditor. And I also watch anime. When it comes to me developing stuff, if I'm watching Grey's Anatomy, while I'm watching Grey's Anatomy, 
I'm entrenched in a very deep Grey's Anatomy Reddit hole. And, and I will read and then I'll search things going on in the series and then read the threads for that. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because in a lot of those discussions, very beautiful, like there's tidbits that are said. And so I will see these tidbits and I'll be like, hmm, hmm, that's interesting. You know, and I go from there and then look at source materials that I have and then sort of marry the two. So I'll be like, oh, there's a character like Meredith Grey, similar to Meredith Grey, but this is how they executed Meredith Grey's character on Grey's Anatomy. But actually, this is a Reddit view of what Grey's, what Meredith actually is. And that's way more interesting to me. So let me marry that with a character that I'm thinking of for a series that I'm currently developing. Like, that's how I think all the time. This is before I even say it in work to be like, I'm thinking of this series. I start looking at things like that. Or I'll read a book and then look at when it was released and then look online to see if there's been any announcements of it. And I'll be like, great, there's been no announcements. Let's, let me look, let me pursue the book and see where we can get with it. And so that all speaks to me. That's very much a development person. It's looking at ways to curate a TV show or in the case of Dare, because Dare is also across film and film as well, based on little, little moments of inspiration that you find in your life. And then also by speaking to incredible talent that you will then pair up with the idea and then basically shepherding them through that process until which case you get to production. I don't know how crass we can be on this. We can be crass. I was finding when I was in production that though there were amazing shows and amazing opportunities, I was having blue balls because I wasn't there from when someone was talking in the room about what this script is supposed to be. You know, I'm only, I, I'm now a script editor at once all these discussions have been had. And then now I was trying to have those same discussions in the middle of production and no one has time for that. <laughs> no, no one has time to hear my thoughts on, oh, maybe we should have done this scene like this because we're in the middle of production. And so that's what was making me realize, mm, this is what I was saying. I am a development person. I need to, you know, I need to go back and be part of the beginning of these things because I don't know how I've gotten to production and I can't have these conversations now. So that's what I meant. Like all these little bits of like from Reddit to being a nerd to uh, doing deep dive research that no one asked for to going into production and realizing that again, no one has time to listen to me right now. That's, these all came together and I said, yep, I'm a development person. I can't be anything else but a development person. Yeah, it's a brilliant summary. It's a caring intensely, but I think the micro details, isn't it? Like, like my mind is filled with useless information that I'm waiting one day for the time for it to be come out and be relevant. And I think that's just me as a person. I will research to death going round and round and round and round and round in circles and having all this information in my head. And so I actually had to be very serious with myself and actually think maybe I have ADHD. And this isn't like saying it just because you know how people say, oh, I've got ADHD. No, this is something I actually looked into and I actually was getting, I'm like, have had like, you know, various tests and I'm still, you know, exploring that, you know, line because 
and because I've always felt in my mind that I am, I do have that way of thinking. I'm very, I get very fixated on things and I will fall into a hole. And when it comes to being like now transferring that into head of development, it's to my advantage, there's also to my detriment. And so that's when I've realized, okay, I need to delegate things more because if I don't delegate, I'm going to be going in round around the houses in minutiae details that don't no one's up for and we're not even looking at shows in that area. So I need to delegate more while I try and like you know, <laughs> like figure things out. I hope you have a yeah rigorous internal filing system um, so you can call back to it. <laughs> I was really interested in the fact that in your statement upon joining Dare Pictures, you spoke about wanting to create subversive and revolutionary content. I'm wondering how you go about finding those stories and finding the right voices to tell them. I would love to sit here and say that we've been going out there to find them. But since I joined at Dare, people have been pitching us some of the most incredible stories. Um, and I would say our slate and how it's grown has, is like, you know, it's grown beyond my expectations. And loads of people will just email us and say, I saw, you know, like what you've just said, I saw that you're looking for subversive, you know, content. We have, we have this series that we've been working on, have a look at it, or a writer will be like, you know, I've been writing on this for ages. I don't have an agent. I'm not really into the industry. But, and I know that you may not take unsolicited material, but like I'm hoping to email you on the off chance that you will have a look. And we definitely don't take unsolicited material, but what, what we are being, we are quite transparent with people and saying, you know, we don't take unsolicited material, so we're not going to read it. But if you have a lawyer to submit it to us that way. But all of this is to say that that's, that's literally how we've been getting a lot of our uh, IP. And then also I brought a lot over projects for my previous contract as well that are also quite subversive and I think that we I think I'm not interested in watching something that has already had a version elsewhere I'm not really interested in developing something like that I'm interested in developing something that someone would look at and be like where the f did they find that and I think our slate really 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 represents that and because of that, we're attracting that same type of talent as well. The kind of talent that aren't interested in playing it safe. What I will say is I'm quite fortunate in that I co-founded Black Criminal Inscripted, which has various, various, various levels of talent in the group. And everybody is doing so well and thriving. It's such a beautiful organisation. But a lot of, I'm like, you know, a lot of the pitches, you know, I'm getting, you know, people come from Black Women Scripted as well. And also there's execs in Black Women Scripted. So then when pitches come in, you can speak to an exec and be like, is there a way for us to co-pro? And so that's how we're finding these subversive titles as well. It's like looking at what organisations I have access to. And Black Women Scripted as the title screams subversive and so if I'm already talking to people in there undoubtedly they're going to have their stories to tell so that's a good place for me to look but I suppose it speaks as well like you've done a lot of the work already like as you say like you've curated that space in black women inscripted you've curated your own tastes and kind of what people might know that you're interested in so it's it's not that you're not doing the work it's kind of that you've already done it 
I've had so many different struggles in this industry. A lot of them have been quite difficult. I've been quite great. I've been quite lucky in that I have a circle of friends and, you know, industry counterparts who are so supportive. And we really have been quite keen to break the sort of thought process of there's only space for one of us. So like if one of us succeeds, that's it. No one else can succeed. And I've been quite fortunate in that I have people in my life um, that are doing such amazing things and we are all supporting each other and we've been supporting each other for years and years and years. And now we're at a point where we're all at varying levels of the success, but we've all been supported like, you know, throughout. And I would say like Katie Sinclair is someone, Yero Timmy Bu is another person, Yolanda Sito, you know, like Hannah Campbell, you know, Shimon Greenish Forsyth. I'm calling out these people only because these are people that have really held me down in my career. Also, my, my fellow co, my collab founders and my Black Women in Scripture co-founders, Miranda Wayland and Darren Lawford. And as I said, Deborah Sargent, wherever you are, thank you. One thing that I've learned in the industry is that there's a bad impression the industry has that everyone is mean or like no one no one cares about people and people are out to you know use others to get ahead and all that and I have had those experiences 100% but I think it's also important to mention the positive experiences I have had and the people who have contributed to bringing me there um, because People need to understand in the industry that you should be comfortable to lean on your friends. You should be comfortable to ask your friend's advice. You should be comfortable to see when your friend is nominated for a BAFTA or is in the Forbes 30 under 30, that this is a win for all of us because we have supported each other and now someone is finally getting their, you know, flowers. Someone is finally getting wider recognition. Like we've all worked hard and we've all been genuine and we've all been supportive. So let's always spare time to speak about that and not just always about the negative experiences of the industry. And so I wanted to have, I wanted to co-create a space for others that they know that there is somewhere for them to go for support that I necessarily didn't always have. Like they don't have to search too far this is a space for you to talk or this is a space for you to, you know, connect with other people and be seen. Because I never, I, there were periods in my time where I, I didn't feel seen and the self-aware thing I mentioned to you at the start, that came about by basically understanding who I am as a person and then approaching jobs that would accept me as who I am as a person. Because that's also very, very, very rare. You will, you, you know, you go into a job, people just expect you to acclimatize to them. I quickly found out that my personality and who I am as a person and my ambition, I would find it very, very hard to mold myself to fit into a pre-existing mold. And that's probably why I was bumping a lot in a lot of previous contracts that I had. Whereas with here, I'm working with someone that knows that I'm outrageous and knows that I've got a big personality and knows that I'm a ridiculous person sometimes, right? And it's just like, yeah, I'm still going to make her my head of scripted and she's going to do well because I've empowered her to be herself. And that, is, and you know, I don't want to get emotional, but that is something that is very, very important. And I, I hope that more people in the industry 
get that experience that I've had at this point. I'd love to know in the kind of context of those negative experiences, how you built resilience for yourself. You know, was it in the formation or the formalization of, you know, that support that you had found in in other black women in the industry? You know, was it looking outside of the industry? How did you keep going? It literally is by, as I said, speaking to my friends. There are loads of friends I haven't even mentioned, but I I've been quite I was, I've been as I said I've been quite fortunate to have a you know have built a friendship circle that were very very supportive of me during my very dark times and and really empowered me and also listened to me and believed in me because if they didn't believe in me they wouldn't be comfortable to continue putting me up for roles after I've already said that I had X experience at this contract you know because there would be nothing I mean the industry works by you know who do you know so really and truly I couldn't have really been angry with them if after all the negative experiences I told my friends because you know you vent to your friends a lot right so you're telling them that this contract was difficult oh I've moved here this is also difficult I've moved here and I'm gonna I moved about six places back to back this was difficult this is difficult this was difficult this was difficult some some I don't even have on my CV anymore but I had to trust in my friends that though I was talking to them very honestly about it they would still understand that Maybe I do have a part to play in it, but it still doesn't warrant the treatment. You know what I mean? And they were the friends that were still putting forward for jobs. The Marvels and the Ted Lassos that you see on my CV, those came from friends literally putting my CVs into group chats, <laughs> um, you know, or like being, being at a networking event and then a friend mentioning that I'm available. And then I got both roles. You know, we talk about nepotism in the industry, yeah? And I don't have any nepotism in the industry in that sense, but I do have really good friends. <laughs> That's what I would say. And also my, I would, you know, I have to pick myself up. Yes, there's me as well. Yes, I've done well, my CV and everything. <laughs> you know, yes, I've done well and everything. But it was literally speaking to my friends, getting therapy. Also, my biggest, biggest organisation that really helped me through so much is the film and TV charity as well. There have been contracts and things that have happened that I would not have been able to get through without a film and TV charity. Just being able to call someone at night when I couldn't sleep because I was panicked about something and them just talking to me. And then if they're like saying, oh, if you need legal advice, you can get your legal advice. Like, I think a lot of people don't actually really realize the work that the film and TV charity do. But for me, I will always champion them because they help people like me that aren't always feeling like they are seen, even though outwardly they seem to be successful as hell. Because that's the issue with me. Like outwardly, there were times where my success was my Achilles heel. People see my success, so they think everything's fine. But then there was like so many different things happening. You know, outside of, I didn't want to keep exhausting my friends. Uh, I didn't want to take up their capacity because their time is important too. So I would also speak to the film and TV charity and get advice that way. I'm really pleased that you shouted them out because, yeah, they are invaluable to this industry and they do really great work. 
winding down slightly, but also coming back into that word subversive, which I can't let go of, but I'm wondering, you know, how you keep that spirit throughout the development process, because it's kind of all very well to sort of say that you're looking for that content, but then it could get distilled or it could get flattened out, you know, the more that you head towards production. And I'm wondering what you do to kind of keep that element of play and almost like fun in the writing and the the redrafting and the the creating yeah I think it depends I think it all comes down to how much you believe in the story as a whole if the story is supposed to be subversive and you've hired you you brought along a writer who is you've chosen because oh they can handle subversive material or are quite a controversial voice you can't then attach them to that and then try and water down their voice I, I've, I've witnessed it happen so many times in the industry where writers brought on for their controversial nature but then now the controversial nature is at odds with what the commissioning team at a channel has told the production company so now the production company wants to put pressure on the writer to be vanilla whereas like I'm not interested in doing that because as this all comes back to the research I told you earlier, before I pair a creative force with a IP that we have on the slate, I have done that research, you know, and I have done that research in terms of like, if we're looking at IP that BBC had previously done a documentary on, BBC have already done a documentary. It was subversive in a documentary. So why can't it be the same as scripted? I'm not going to water down the scripted approach. I'm going to keep it to it. You have to believe in what you're talking about and what you're saying. A lot of people just are making TV for the sake of making TV. But like, if you are someone who is actually passionate about people seeing certain stories on screen so that their experiences, I mean, not I'm not trying to say that everybody looks towards TV and film for validation. But there are people at home who on a bad day just want to be able to look at something and be like, whoa, I didn't even know that existed. I'm wondering if there is a piece of advice that you've been given that has steered your course or, you know, stayed with you throughout your career or kind of acts as something like a mantra. Yes, it is to stop being, stop telling everyone information that they haven't actually asked for. Such as, can you give me an example? Yeah, so... I think at the start of my career, you know, I'm quite a loud, I was always known as a loud person. If I'm in the room, people always say, I'm the big, I've got a big personality. But what that always ended up is, I was also quite open with like a lot of my experiences to everyone. So even if I'm emailing someone, I'm like, oh, that contract ended because me and this person had this you know what you know what I mean like just using that as an example like just being very open with everyone and the issue with that is when you talk to everyone about things that they haven't asked for so someone's saying how are you you could just leave it as I'm fine but I'm a bit stressed out at the moment and then if they ask what's stressing you out then you talk to them about it. But you don't do it as one stream of consciousness of how are you? You know, like, and again, this is just my experience. You know, everybody else is different. But I used to just, you know, blur everything out because I'm quite like an either or person. I'm, you know, 
being I'm, I've become a bit more flexible in my old age I say old age I just turned 30 but um, <laughs> but um I was always an either all so I never used to understand don't tell everyone everything and I used to just be like why not I don't care I'm I'm open with everything but what was actually happening is that it was at my detriment because I was having people refer things that happened in previous contra- contracts to me as a reason why not to put me forward, you know, or I was just not getting as, as, as a head because obviously people would assume where well, she's talking so openly about what happened at that company, when she comes to work for us, you know, it's going to be all, ha- she's just going to blow everything out. You know what I mean? So I had to think, I had to really look at my circle and be like, okay, these are the people that I talked to about my experience, no one outside of this, and that's the best way forward. And so that's my, that's that's the advice I received from someone who was very honest with me. It's just like, do, just listen to what people are asking you, but also pay, like, who is asking you that question? And are they entitled to your life experience? And what do they add to your life experience? And if they're not in a position to add anything and they're just here to take your trauma and go, then that's not, <laughs> that's not gonna be helpful to you because you don't need another person having a front row seat to your trauma that the industry has caused. And, I, and, and that's what I'm, act- I'm actually writing about that at the moment, I'm, I'm literally writing a script to discuss that because I do think that I would say that the industry has an overall mental health issue, like a big mental health issue. There are some, there are those people I know that have gone through some like horrendous things, men, like in terms of their mental health. But then I'm seeing them on screen smiling, and that's what's like heartbreaking. And so that's why I really took that advice to heart because I don't ever want someone hearing red flags from me, but they're not taking it in because I've given that information for free and they don't have any, I wouldn't say like they don't have a stake in my growth. So they've heard my red flags about things that might be happening that are disturbing me, but they're not invested enough to help me. Therefore, I don't need that person to know my life story, and that's what that's what I've that's what I'm, you know, preaching. That's what I'm preaching, and I'm trying to live by. I yeah, I totally see that, and and not it's like not giving yourself when it's just an extractive relationship, like not like feeding that. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like I think this industry has a real issue of trauma bonding. Is is a is a capturing too really because you do want to share experiences with people and they understand those experiences because they've been through them therefore they can advise you better and be a a greater support to you but I also don't want to be having a friendship that's only bonded by trauma because we've worked we've worked for this these people and these people have done this so now we've got this underground support group for a person because I'm like in an age where we're all calling people out. Why are we still having underground support groups for people that we know are problematic? I'd rather not be part of the conversation then. You know what I mean? I'd rather, if if no one is ready to take action, then I'd rather not be part of the conversation. Because if you're going to include me in a conversation, then you best believe that you have to be ready to put in action because I am a foghorn. So if you tell me that that person's a problem, I will make sure that specific people will know that that person's a problem. So <laughs> so that's how I am as a person. That can put me at odds with other people, but uh, I don't really mind 
I love it. I think we could all do well to act a little bit more like a foghorn. <laughs> Finally, um, I'd love to know if there is a film or a TV show by a woman director that you would like to recommend today. Yes. So I would like to recommend I Am Not a Witch by Rangano Nioni. Is it Nioni? Forgive me, Rangano, if that's not the best way to pronounce your surname. But I really think, I really love that film, um, I Am Not a Witch. I think it's on Netflix at the moment, but it is great. I think it's a very powerful movie. And I think that she's going to do well in the industry. And I would really recommend it to people who are looking for, I think it, I think it's the best way to outline my taste. Um, I only came across this film last year. You know, Daniel Kluya, who I was working for at the time, he actually suggested it to me. And I thought that it was a brilliant film and it also showcased what I meant by the subversiveness of that is the film looks one way, but there's so many other layers that have been really, really encapsulated in, its, in the direction and the screenwriting. So I would highly recommend, you know, up and coming filmmakers to watch it or even people in the industry that are trying to have a taste of what kind of shows and films I'd be looking at, I would highly recommend you have a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real kind of piece of visionary cinema, very satirical. Cassandra, thank you so much. I, we we barely got through half of my questions, but everything that we did talk about was so interesting. Um, and I just want to really thank you for your time today. It's been such a privilege. No worries. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. If you're interested in other interviews with women working in development, check out my episodes with Katie Sinclair and Dion Farrell. In the meantime, have a great weekend and I'll be back next Friday with a brand new episode.